We're back in the book of Acts. Um, last week, I was kind of making jokes. If anybody was there at the, um, at the uh, what's it, doohickey, the other church, you know? And um, we read that list of my 16-point sermon, 16 things that we see in those verses about the early church. And it was really, I even combined some of them. It could have been like 20, 21-point sermon. But anyway, one of those verses, one of those points was that many, what did it say? Many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. And what I talked about was how in the very early church, there was these miracles that sort of helped establish this group as these are the continuation of the people of Jesus, right? These are, this is the ministry of Jesus continuing through the apostles. And so what we're going to read as we see the book of Acts is a lot of these miracles look a lot like the miracles that Jesus did. So we're going to read one today about Peter, and then we are uh, going to compare it. I think reading one of Jesus's miracles is going to help us with our kind of wrap-up and what's going on um, in this miracle. Now, I want to say at the outset, and I said this a little bit last week, but there's a couple of options on what people believe about miracles today. The first group, they're called cessationists, and they don't believe miracles happen anymore. They think only the apostles did miracles. After that, they stopped. And uh, it was only for the early church to get them going, and that was it. That's the first group. Uh, the EFCA, our church, we're not cessationists. The second group is uh, what I call the crazies. Okay, these are the guys who, you know, Benny Hinn and these guys hitting people with their jackets. And did anybody, I mentioned it last week, guys. I should have had the video. Uh, it's so funny find it, where he's, they turn his jacket that he's hitting people with on the stage, and they're all getting healed, and they're all falling over and stuff, and um, uh, they turn into lightsabers, where he's cutting people in half and stuff. It's pretty great. Um, and then the other one is, let the bodies hit the floor. Let the, you know, and then, ah, and he starts hitting them with his jacket. It's pretty great. So there's people like that, and they hold healing services, and they think healing is the main thing that we do as a church, and this is how people are going to come in. We are also not the crazies. We're not the cessationists. We're not the crazies. So what does our church kind of believe? What does the EFCA believe about healing? Well, I think we believe pretty much what the Bible says is that uh, God still heals people. It happens. Um, the guy, and I actually mentioned him last week, uh, the guy, my buddy who just died. I mentioned him last week in the sermon, uh, not realizing that like right before I mentioned him, he had just died. Like it, it was, I hadn't looked at Facebook yet in the morning. But anyway, my buddy Bill, who died last Sunday, uh, was supposed to die in the early 90s. And some guys at our church prayed for him, and he showed up for his last, hey, you're about to die, cancer uh, checkup. And they were like, oh, dude, you don't have cancer anymore, and we can't figure out how this cancer that was nobody's ever lived from. You know, so there's, I have stories. I have a few stories like that of people in my life who I know have experienced healing and who have experienced miracles. Um, but at the same time, it's not the center of what we do. We don't expect miracles. We pray for them. We hope for healing. You know, what's the, like, what do we say? Uh, we pray for everybody to get healed because sometimes some of them do, you know? Um, but we also trust in the sovereignty of God that sometimes he doesn't heal people. So Bill got healed in the 90s and then just recently got cancer again and then he died last week. You know, he doesn't, he, he didn't, it's not everlasting healing, you know? And so sometimes God works and sometimes he doesn't and he has sovereign reasons for doing those things. But the idea is that miracles, I do believe they still happen. And uh, I do believe 
especially though they were concentrated in the early church, right? In a, in a unique and a special way. Um, and we'll read about this miracle today. I don't think, so we talked about in the book of Acts, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Is this something we're supposed to do like this in every instance? Or is this just kind of what happened and we're supposed to learn from what happened? I don't think that the way that this miracle happens is how we're supposed to do this all the time. At the same time, I also think that sometimes people probably still do miracles just like this. Okay? Uh, but we're not going to do at the end of the service, okay, who's got the hemorrhoids? Come on up. We're going to pray for, you know, like, <laughs> you know. As I'm healed, you know, that's not what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to take this and we're going to learn from this story without being cessationists and without being the crazies, right? All right, so we're going to read um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 today. Um, I'm just going to have kind of the whole passage up behind me. Um, we're going to walk through it. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Okay, so Jesus had these three, had, uh, let's see, what was it, 72 disciples, right? And then among that 72, there were 12 special guys. Those were like the, what we think of as the disciples, the apostles, the 12. But within that 12, there were three. Those guys were sort of Jesus's inner, inner circle, the best friends. There were Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. Okay, these were the three special guys. In the very early church, what we see is that Peter and John take a very uh, front public kind of role as leaders among the apostles, especially Peter. Um, and so we see these two guys here. Um, I like to joke about the rivalry between these two guys a lot, because Peter, from what we know about church history, Peter was probably older, and John was probably like a youth group age kid, maybe a little bit older, right? He was just coming into manhood when all of this was happening. He was probably the youngest of the disciples. And I always joke about the verse, that's my favorite verse in the Bible, where John wrote a gospel and in that gospel, he purposely just puts in that when they raced to the tomb, he got there first. And I was like, I have brothers. I know that exact like way to rag on your brothers, you know? And I like to joke about that a lot, but the Bible actually presents these guys not as a joke um, of a rivalry, but presents them as this powerhouse team of leaders who worked together to get the church going, when in truth, they were probably pretty different guys. They seemed to have different personalities. Um, they seem to be very different ages. And so what we see here is an example of how the gospel brings people together. And two guys who had this probably had this, watch, I'm going to get to heaven and they're going to laugh and be like, we never had a friendly rivalry. I don't know what any of this was about. But it seems like they had this sort of friendly rivalry. But ultimately, what, what the glue that held them together was Christ, right? And so the, these two guys, they're going up to the temple to pray. So the temple, remember, we talked about this before, but the early church considered themselves uh, the continuation of the Old Testament. They're the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. And so they actually, they didn't break with the temple like a hard, hey, we're not going to temple anymore. And we're not going to go do all this Jewish rituals and all this stuff. Um, the book of Acts is, the first section of the book of Acts portrays the church as these two rival temples. There's the, the temple of Herod and the Sadducees and those guys. And then there's this new temple, the people of God. And at the very beginning, they're still kind of one thing, and they slowly sort of drift apart. And so here, they're going up to the temple to pray. Um, one, I read a lot of commentaries when I study for these passages. And one of the things we're going to talk about in the How to Study the Bible series is don't just read brand new commentaries from like 1970 and on. So there was this guy, um, 
I forget which one it was. I think it was Matthew Poole, some guy from like the 1700s or something. And I was reading through commentaries and he was the only one that pointed out something. And he says, look, it doesn't say why they went to the temple to pray. But what we see, I bet that they went to the temple because that's where there was a whole bunch of people looking for God. And they were the church that said, hey, we know all about the Christ. We know about the Messiah. And so they weren't just going to the temple to pray. They were going to the temple because that's where people were looking for Jesus. We're looking for Messiah. We're looking for God. And he was the only commentator that pointed that out. So I just want you to remember that for in a few weeks when we talk about commentaries. And so they go, and it's at the ninth hour. Anybody know what time that is? 3 p.m.-ish. Time was pretty fuzzy, right? They didn't have these cool Casio watches back in the day, right? So anyway, they're going up. It's like the afternoon. Everybody's tired, working all day. Verse 2, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they lay daily at the temple, at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Okay, so here's this man now. This is his condition. He can't walk. He has to be, we see this, he has to be carried to the temple, and he's begging for alms, which is, you know, he's sitting there, he's asking for money. This is a great place to ask for money, is to get people, while they're about to go into the temple, and ask for forgiveness for their sins. This is a great place to hit people up for money, right? This is like sitting outside of a church or, you know, something like that, trying to, trying to get the people who are feeling guilty. Now, it's easy for us to sort of forget, and it, or let me say it this way. It's hard for us to get into the story and really understand the terrible plight that this man was in. It's hard for us to truly understand how horrible this guy's life was. In the ancient world, being handicapped was one of the worst things that could happen to you because in the Jewish world especially, they thought, and we'll read this in a minute when we read John 9, but they thought this person is like this because he's being judged by God. So this is a sinner getting what he deserves. So there wasn't compassion and there wasn't this heart of we love this person and we want to help this person. There was an arrogance and a, yeah, that sounds about right. This guy's a sinner. And that made for a very hard life. And because, so he couldn't work. There was no social security system, right? There were no food stamps. There was no government housing, right? So we don't know where this guy lived. He seems to have had family. Somebody's carrying him to the temple. But it's still, if he's begging for money, this is a pretty hard life. He has to sit there every day. And if he's going to survive and he's going to eat, He's relying on the generosity of people who think that he's being judged by God, and that's why he's like this, because his parents sinned, or because his grandparents, or because he was a sinner, or something like that. And so every day he had to look at people who looked at him with disgust, and who probably didn't want to help him, and he probably didn't make very much money. And then on top of all of that, where were these people going? They were going to the temple. And the temple was a place of joy and happiness, and a place of worship, And people would go in there and they would talk about how magnificent it was while this guy sits at the gate outside the temple. And because of his handicap, the rules in first century Judaism, he wasn't allowed inside the temple. He was ritually impure. And so every day he had to sit there and watch these people go in and come out happy, come out excited, come out, go in singing songs, singing psalms, all excited. And he couldn't participate. I was just watching, uh, you guys remember that show, King of Queens? I talk about this show way more than I should, but I like the show. It's pretty funny. From like the early 2000s with Kevin James. Anyway, there was just an episode where him and his wife tried to go to the, uh, some club, and it was 
a lot of shows have that same episode where the old people try to go to a club and they have to wait outside and the bouncer let his wife in, but then the bouncer wouldn't let him in. And he was just sitting out there and the whole episode was him trying to get into the club when the bouncer wouldn't let him in. That's kind of what's going on here, but times a million, right? Every single day, this guy sat out there and the bouncers wouldn't let him into the temple. He just sat out there and people walked by him in disgust. They probably threw money at him. This is a rough life that this guy's living. And so... He's sitting outside the temple. Oh, I want to point out one more thing. He's sitting outside the gate called Beautiful, or the one they called the Beautiful Gate. We'll talk about this in the How to Study the Bible class, How to Study the Good Book. But here's the thing. When I was reading commentaries, three quarters of the commentaries on this passage were scholars arguing over which of the four gates this was to the temple. No, it was this one. The truth is they have no idea. Nobody knows. This was the Beautiful Gate. This Anyway, I just want to point out... Um, it super doesn't matter which gate this was. There were a couple of doors to go inside. There was one that was real nice. And he thought, I bet people will be in a better mood when they're going into this gate. <laughs> I don't know, something like that. So he's sitting outside this gate. And Peter and John, they're going up to the temple. Seeing Peter and John, verse 3, about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. So they looked at him. And he said, look at us. Uh... Oh, wait, no, I do have first five. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So Peter and John are walking up to the temple. And I, you know, I don't know what they did back in the day if he had a little tin can with a couple of coins in it and he rattled it as they walked by or something. But Peter and John were walking by in the crowd and this guy caught their attention and said, you know, hey, can you spare a dollar? I'm trying to get some Burger King. And Peter and John stopped, and they looked at him, and they even said to him, look at us. You know what that means? He wasn't looking at them. You don't tell somebody, look at me, when they're looking right in your eyes. That's weird. So something was going on here. This guy's not super into what's happening. He just thinks this is going to be a normal interaction. And Peter and John stop, and they say, no, 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 look me in the eyes. And fixing attention on them, right now he gets excited, because now he thinks, I'm going to get something. Now, let's be honest. We understand this passage better than somebody that lives in Bodunk, Iowa, or whatever. You know why? Because we live in a city with a serious problem of drug users, homeless, mentally ill people on the streets, right? It's hard to walk around San Francisco without seeing folks that remind us of this story and this guy. And at times, it can be scary. At other times, it's sad. Let's be honest. Sometimes it's annoying. And so what do we do if you've been in the city for any length of time? I guarantee 100% you don't want to admit this in church, but this is what you do. You have gotten really good at not noticing people. Because it's easier to just not notice people, isn't it? And so if some homeless guy said to you, hey, do you have a dollar? And you sat down next to him, he would think, I'm getting five bucks. I'm getting 20 bucks. He would be very excited. And so that's what Peter does here. He doesn't do the thing that we're all so good at, where we pretend not to notice people who might annoy us or whatever. He says, look at me. So the guy looks at him. He's expecting to get some money. And then Peter says, I have no silver or gold. Well, dude, go. Like, you're wasting my time. The guy behind you might have some silver and gold. But Peter keeps going. It gets better. I, do, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
That's a pretty bold thing to say to this guy. Now, I want you to notice something. How does Peter heal this guy? He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's important. Think about the authority when Jesus healed people. What did Jesus say? Get up. Grab your mat and get up. Or he says, okay, now you're not a leper. Go to the priests and do whatever they tell you to do. Lazarus, come forth. Or, you know, come on, dude, let's go. That's the, 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 the rough translation. He doesn't say, in the name of that guy over there, Lazarus, come out. Jesus had this power in himself. It's important that the disciples, these apostles, they don't heal that way. They don't stand there with authority within themselves. They stand here and go, because of Jesus, rise up and walk. Now, there's a story that I have to tell you that everybody argues over whether it really happened. I think it probably did, and then it snowballed, and nobody knows exactly what happened. But here's the story. You guys know there's a medieval writer. Um, or, yeah, so there, this came from a medieval writer who wrote this down, and anyway, nobody knows exactly. But there's a, a guy named Thomas Aquinas. You guys know him, the theologian, philosopher, pretty smart dude. He was in Rome one day. And he was walking with a Catholic cardinal. And the cardinal, this is the best version of the story I could find. I think that this is like how it, closest to how it happened. And the cardinal, you know, he's got all his, uh, you know, the big, the whole like uh, Santa outfit on, the whole thing, you know. And he's walking down a street and there's a beggar there. And the guy opens up his bag of money, takes out some coins and throws the coins into the guy's cup. And then he turns to Aquinas and he says, luckily... We can no longer say, as Peter did, silver and gold have I none. And then Aquinas goes, yeah, but you also can't say get up and walk. Right? And I think that's like a telling story on where the church was and maybe still is to some degree. Right? Is how much of the power of the Holy Spirit have we lost because we're relying on other things. There's, this is so great, this story of Peter and his confidence and his filling with the Spirit. We'll read next week when and the next couple of weeks It'll say a few times, like, Peter was filled with the Spirit while all this stuff was happening. And so here he goes, he says to the guy, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And here is the best part of the story. You ready for this? Okay. This is hilarious. And he told him, and he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. The order of that is very important. Let me tell you why. Peter didn't say, rise up and walk. Try to stand up. This is what Peter did. Think about this for a second. Think about the boldness here. He says, uh, it says, look at the order. Took him by the right hand. He says, rise up and walk. He reaches down, he grabs him. He pulls him up by the right hand. And then in midair, basically, his feet and his ankles were made strong. I love that Luke, by the way, uses, he's, we're going to see this all throughout Acts like we did in Luke. He always uses very descriptive kind of medical language because he was a doctor. This is not just like, oh, his legs were better. His feet specifically and his ankles were the problem. Peter pulls this guy up in midair. His ankles become better in midair. And by the time he hits the ground, he can walk. That's kind of cool. You know why that's cool? Because think about how horribly that could have gone. Rise up and walk. Grabs him, picks him up. Ankles don't get better. The guy flops down, and then Peter just body slammed a handicapped guy in front of the temple, in front of everybody. 
That is a very real possibility of something that could have happened here. But because of the boldness of Peter and how in tune he was with the Spirit, we don't see any sense of hesitation. It doesn't seem, he seems very confident that this is going to happen. And then look at the guy. So what happens next? Leaping up, he stood up uh, and began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So look at this, look at these verbs. Leaping, right? He's, he's jumping, he's bouncing around. I love that. That's how complete this healing was. He's walking. Um, I said this, I don't remember, in one of our Bible study classes or something I mentioned that I, I had just noticed this. But if you think about it, that's how complete this healing was. It wasn't that his feet were made strong and then he had the strength. But remember, we'll find out later, this guy has been like this from birth. And at this point, he's like 40 years old, right? He's like my age. He never walked before. He never had to learn how to walk. As soon as his feet and his ankles are better, as soon as the thing in him that was broken is better, he's bouncing around. He is jumping around like Jonathan Kaminga. You ever see that guy jump, by the way, on the Warriors? He dunked a ball the other day, and he was eye level with the rim. He's like, oh, that's this guy right here. He's the Jonathan Kaminga of the first century. Bouncing around the temple grounds. He didn't do the baby giraffe. You guys know what I'm talking about when the giraffe has to walk right away. Isn't it right away they have to learn how to walk? Like they just fall out and like, all right, we're running for it. And they do that wobbly kind of thing. No, no, no. He's bouncing around. And um, look at verse, look at the rest of it. Uh, leaping. And they entered the temple with them walking. And he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and what? Praising God. So now they go from the gate outside the temple into the temple for the first time in this guy's life. He gets to go into the temple where he sat outside every day. No doubt wanting to go inside. Finally, the bouncer lets him in, right? And here he is. And what is he doing? He's jumping around and that's important and everything. I mean, have you ever seen me? Have you ever been in a Niners game with me? This is what I do. They score. I jump on the couch. Me and heaven, we do a dance. It's a whole thing. That's what this guy's doing. That's how excited he is. But he's not praising Debo Samuel or Brock Purdy. He's praising his creator. Now, why is that important? That wording. Because he's not praising Peter and John. This guy knew what happened. When they said in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he knew, okay, this is not their power. And he knew what had happened, and he knew that he had been healed by God. Somewhere, we'll find out later, it'll talk about his faith and stuff, um, but somewhere in that moment, this guy had faith in Christ, maybe just this much. But when Peter said, grabbed him by the hand and pulled him up, it seems like this guy sort of let him. You know, if you're laying on the ground, we were just watching Dennis the Menace with the girls yesterday. You guys, this movie is fantastic. <laughs> I haven't seen it since I was a kid. But anyway, there's a scene where he doesn't want to go to that little girl's house and be babysat over there. And so he lays on the sidewalk and then his mom drags him across, you know, and he just goes dead weight and she can't pick him up. This guy could have gone dead weight and not let Peter pick him up and flop him over, you know. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he had enough faith to, A, let Peter pick him up and drop him, and B, he had faith that his legs would be better when it happened. And, you know, it all probably happened very fast, but this guy had these glimmers of faith. And so when it happens, he gets into the temple and he's jumping around 
and he's praising. He's singing psalms he probably knew. He's saying things about God Almighty, his creator, and no doubt he's talking about Jesus. And he's making a scene. Now, I don't know what, I think the temple was probably pretty, on certain days, chaotic. I think on, at certain times, though, when everybody's in there praying. You ever been to a prayer meeting? Right, we're having one in a few weeks. You know, so picture kind of a, I mean, they were probably more rowdy than we are, but let's picture a prayer meeting. Everybody's sitting around and they're saying their prayers and they're worshiping. And imagine some guy just comes in and starts jumping around, jumping on the furniture, screaming psalms and praising God. It makes a pretty big scene. And we'll see, uh, look at this, um, and all the people, look at verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God. Yeah, because he was making a massive scene and he was shouting and doing all this stuff. Um, and they recognized him as the one who sat by the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Everybody knew this guy. This dude was not just some guy, some stranger. This was the guy who sits outside the temple and bothers me every time I come into the temple. So, for example, like um, when I was at my old church uh, in the Mission District, there were a few different guys who were uh, the homeless guys who slept out in front of the church, and we kind of got to know them. We'd bring them food and different stuff. We'd bring them in for coffee on Sundays and that sort of stuff. But we knew these guys. I knew them by name. Um, I actually saw one of them a few months ago, and his name is John, and I said hi to him, and he didn't remember me. But anyway, I remembered him, you know? Like years later, I haven't seen this guy in years. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. They knew who this guy was. He wasn't a stranger, and they're all looking at him, bouncing around the temple. But he's been sitting out there on that mat, and he, we, they all knew he couldn't walk. It's too long to fake it. He's been sitting out there 40 years. Right? This is a long con if he's faking it. And so they're filled with wonder and amazement. I love that. They're, they're, they're dumbfounded. How is it that this guy, who's been sitting outside the temple for all these years asking for money, how did he come to walk? That's the big question. Now, that's our whole text. There's a few ways, let me tell you, how we can do a sermon on this text. I'm going to give you a couple of the ways, and then I'm going to tell you where we're going to go to end it. The first sermon is kind of what I did at the beginning, and we could really get into this. And we could ask the question, do miracles still happen? And how does our church think about miracles, and what do we do? And how do we keep from being the crazies on both sides that never think miracles never happen and the ones who think everything in the whole world is miracles and we're obsessed with healing and we're making up stories just to make ourselves feel better about miracles. And we could do a whole sermon about the verse in James where it says to pray for people uh, because sometimes they get healed and that sort of stuff. That's the first sermon. Okay, we're not going to do that one. The second sermon is we could talk about, I really like the part where it says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And we could do a whole ending of the sermon on whose power are we trying to do stuff in. And the book of Acts is all about doing things in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Our key verse for the book of Acts is Acts 1.8. You will be filled, uh, wait, what is it? Um, I just had a total brain fart and I didn't write it down. Uh, wait, do you have it there? Read it. I sh- I've, I'm so used to knowing it by heart until I had a brain fart in front of everybody. Be Receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There we go. 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's the key verse in Acts. So we can do a whole sermon on whose power are we doing stuff in. Are we trying to serve the Lord in our own power? Trying to use our own strength? Or are we totally helpless and dependent on the Lord? That could be a sermon. Not going to do that one though either. Here's the third one. We could do a sermon on what a miracle even is and how miracles are, um, the point of a miracle is to give people glimpses of what eternity is going to be like. So every miracle sort of, if you, it cuts through the fabric of our broken world and peers through at eternity and says, you know what? You're not supposed to have leprosy. And so Jesus heals people of leprosy because that's what it's going to be like in the new heavens and new earth. And it's what it was like in Eden, right? He's not changing something. He's restoring it to the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be sick and blind and have fevers and, I mean, even people who are dead, right? You know, that stuff is not supposed to happen. People are not supposed to be crippled because their feet and their ankles don't work. And so we could do a whole sermon and ask this question. Even when you're not healing people, how are you giving them glimpses of eternity in your own life? That could be another sermon. But again, we're not going to do that one. The fourth sermon we're not going to do. You guys, I could have done this passage for six weeks here. Um, the fourth sermon, do you want to? Okay, wait, let's pray. I'll go home and write these all up. No, um, the fourth one is we could do a sermon, and this would be a very relevant sermon on, let's be honest, how do you treat these people that you'd rather ignore? What does the gospel say about the way that you should treat people in San Francisco? You, have amp- you probably are not going to go down into the tenderloin and see some guy in a wheelchair and pull him out of his wheelchair into traffic and hope his feet work before he hits the ground. That's probably not going to happen. But the way that you treat people should reflect the love of Christ. Like the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Everybody walked past him except the guy who wasn't even supposed to. And he leans down and he, he helps him and, you know, he, he cares for him. And we should love people that we would rather not even like, if we're being honest. Let's not pretend... Like we're all naturally in love with street people, you know, who like people who live on the street, people without houses, people who have mental issues, drug addicts, you know, like all different kinds of people, right? Let's not pretend like our heart naturally is inclined to love people like this. It's not. But what we should do is we should be so filled with the love of Christ coming towards us that that love should reflect out of us into other people. We should love them as much as Jesus loves us, right? And that could be a whole sermon and I could stretch that out. We're not going to do that sermon either. And then the last one we're not going to do is we could do a sermon on how come we go through life feeling so regular? It's because we forget what Jesus did for us. And this guy bouncing around the temple is a great sort of metaphor for how we should be living life with joy. Because this guy was healed. That's great. We've been healed of sin and death. That's even better. I'd rather go through life crippled and healed of sin and death than be able to walk and not have salvation. And so we should be joyful. You don't have to bounce. Some of us can't exactly jump anymore because of our knees and whatnot, but you should go, you should still, we should go through life with an excitement and a joy that people notice. This guy was so annoyingly happy that everybody looked at him. And then when they looked at him, they went, wait, that's the guy that can't walk. How's he bouncing around? And it started a whole thing. And next week we'll read Peter's sermon to this crowd and we'll see how people are going to get saved and this whole thing. So again, that's another one. We're not going to do that. What sermon, how are we going to end this then? Okay. Isn't it cows that have a few stomachs? Right? So they, four stomachs. Oh, that's right. Mr. Rodias knows all about cows. Um, 
they have, uh, what do they do? They eat the grass and goes through one stomach. Then it gets up and it goes through the other stomach and gets in there and digests and then through another stomach. That's how we should treat scripture is the four stomachs approach to scripture. I'm going to write a book about this where you just spend a lot of time looking at the same passage. And when you do that, you're going to start noticing things that you didn't notice on your first round through. And um, that's what I did with this passage. I've been looking at this for a while. And as I did it, something struck me. Like I said, we're going to find out later that this guy was over 40 years old. We're going to read that next week or a couple weeks. And this was his everyday practice to sit outside the temple and beg people for just enough to survive. Every day he had to ask people who despised him, like I said earlier, who thought he was under the judgment of God for money. And he probably experienced very little genuine compassion in his life. And he probably felt for the most part, unloved, and he had a very hard life. Um, Sorry, wait, I just accidentally skipped like five pages. There we go. And here's what bugged me. He's been sitting here for years, years, and there's only a couple of ways to get into the temple, right? This is not one of those giant office buildings with 15 entrances, you know, whatever. There's like four or five doors to get into the temple complex. And he sat outside begging people for money. We just read the book of Luke. And you know what we read in the book of Luke? Tons of times Jesus went to the temple. Went to pray, went to teach, went to flip tables and cause a commotion. He went to do, you remember the the several days during Holy Week of his like theological rap battle with these guys? He was going in and out of the temple, in and out of the temple, and in and out of the temple. And then they killed him. He rose from the dead and he blasted off into heaven. And then all of his followers showed up. And you know what they did? Every day they went in and out of the temple, in and out of the temple, right past this guy, over and over and over again. All of those times, nobody bothered to heal this guy. Think of the timing of that. And then we fast forward And Peter and John, one random Tuesday or whatever it was, three o'clock in the afternoon, they walk in. Now it was time. They heal this guy, he's bouncing around, and then a whole bunch of people are going to get saved. The timing of that bugs me, doesn't it? Why didn't Jesus heal this guy four years earlier? I guarantee Jesus saw this guy before. And knowing who he was, I bet Jesus was like, someday Peter's going to heal that guy. So why didn't they heal him before? All right, we're going to read John, this long story. Okay, I'm going to fly through this. I'm going to read this real quick, as fast as I can. But this is a story from the ministry of Jesus. And I think this is going to answer our question. Okay, our question is this. What took so long? Isn't that mean to not do it earlier? All right, here we go. As he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. So again, similar situations. This guy's been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, so the disciples, the 12 of them, constantly asking Jesus questions, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they're asking the question that everybody wondered. This was just something they assumed in this culture. If you were handicapped like this, it was because you were being punished by God. This was not something people questioned. And so even Jesus' own disciples ask him, was it him or his parents who sinned? They didn't ask, is he being punished by God? They just assumed it. And Jesus answered, 
It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's our key verse, okay? It's not that he sinned. He's like this so that eventually the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's where this passage comes from, that famous phrase. Having said this, having said these things, this is my favorite mirror, one of my favorites, by the way. This is so gross. He spit in the ground. Jesus spits in the ground and he makes mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Dude, come on. He could have just, I'm not going to get into that. He could have just been like, dude, you can see now. But he had to spit in his face first. And he said to him, now go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. So Jesus heals this guy after this conversation with the disciples. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, same thing. He's a beggar. He's blind. There's so many parallels here. Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? That's the same thing the crowds were wondering in uh, Acts chapter uh, 3 here. He kept saying, I am the man. And they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he said, the man called Jesus, he made mud with his spit, by the way, and he anointed my eyes and he said, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He says, I don't know. <laughs> I was at the pool washing, right? Then they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. So they put this guy on trial, basically. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, so they didn't like that. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? There was division among them. So they said again to the man, the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he says, well, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. They thought he was playing the long con. They thought he was faking. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. They called this guy's mom, right? And they brought, him, brought her into the principal's office. And he asked them, the parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, they're terrified of what's going on here. His parents answered, well, we know he's our son, that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. Basically, like, I don't want to get involved with this because I know we're about to get in trouble. Um, he will speak for himself. He's a grown man. He can talk for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who should confess that Jesus to be the Christ was to be put out of the synagogue, which basically meant to be kicked out of society and to be thrown into abject poverty. Therefore, his parents said, again, you know, he's of age. Ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, which is the actual, the opposite. That's completely flipped. He answered, Look, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. That's such a baller answer. They said to him, What did he tell you to do? How did he open your eyes? <laughs> All right, here we go. This is the greatest answer in the Bible. He answered them, I told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? That's what Izzy would say to me, by the way. The snark in there, I love it so much. And they reviled him, and they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from, which was a hint, uh, like a dig at his birth. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't even know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So they answered him, 
you were born in utter sin because you were born blind, right? You were born in sin, and you're going to teach us? I'm the pastors. How dare you talk to me that way? And then they cast him out. That means they kicked him out of society. Like they put this official curse on him. So Jesus heard they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who, sir, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus answered, well, you've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you, which is just a fancy way to go. Do you believe that I'm the Messiah? You know, I am. That's me, dude. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That's key. He worshiped Jesus. A Jewish person who would never worship another human being is worshiping another human being. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those uh, who do not see may see and those who that see may become blind. That's that upside down kingdom stuff. And the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But uh, now that you say we see your guilt remains. All right. So that's the whole passage. There's a lot of parallels in there. The point is, the point of reading that whole passage is verse three. But we just read 40 verses. Yeah, because I wanted to read the whole thing. But verse three was the key. It says this, uh, Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now let's jump back and apply this to Acts chapter four. There's two ways to look at this guy and this problem here. The Pharisees would have said, yeah, this guy gets what he deserves. He's a sinner. He's being judged by God. And Jesus says, and about the guy in chapter nine here, no, it's not that he's being judged. He's being used for the glory of God. God did this to him so that eventually his glory could be made known. His whole life he was blind so that at this moment I could spit in his face and everybody would go, yeah, that guy's the Messiah when he starts to see. The same is true in Acts. Jesus waited. He walked past this guy probably a couple of different times and he looked at him and he thought, I know Peter's going to heal that guy someday. Peter, who's a dummy at this point, by the way, doesn't even know he's going to be healing people someday. Peter's going to heal that guy someday. And when that time came, boom, this guy is healed. Let me tell you how we apply this then to our lives. Let's be honest. Church planting is in San Francisco is harder than we all expected. Every week I get up here and I hammer you with the Pabst Blue Ribbon. You should be investing in your friends and neighbors. And then you do it and it's harder than you thought. And then you go home and you live your everyday life. And you know what? Life is harder than it should be. Your relationships are hard. Your job is hard. Your body doesn't work. You have slip discs and back disease and Garoppolo syndrome. And no, that's me. Uh, but, you know, your body doesn't work. And then people that you love, they die. And the world stinks. Right? Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? And it's just like, when is it going to be easy? The temptation is to go, God doesn't know what he's doing. And it's infuriating. And why doesn't he just fix this if he's so great? Why am I sitting here as God keeps walking past me and keeps walking past me? And if he knew what he was doing, he would do things the way I want him to do it. The problem with that way of thinking is that was the first sin. God should do things my way, and I should be at the center. And you know what? We should be very happy that God doesn't work the way that we want him to work. Because at the very... Think about the plan first. Think about the plan with this guy. I'm... What's going to happen is next week, Peter's going to preach a sermon to a crowd that gathers. This healing really impacts people. And the reason that it does, that it has the impact that it has, and the church grows even more, is because this guy sat there for 40 years. 
because everybody knew for sure that this guy couldn't walk. But it took 40 years of that to happen. God let this guy just sit in it for 40 years, just in a terrible life, so that eventually he could be used to glorify the name of Christ. And it's great that God doesn't always work the way we want him to work, because at the very heart of that idea is our own salvation. Because the way that we get saved is not the way I would have drawn it up. The way most of us would draw it up is you have to be kind of good, but not perfect because that's impossible. So however good I am, that's the baseline for people who go to heaven. And everybody who's worse than me sucks and they go to hell. And Mother Teresa goes to heaven too. And that's how we think salvation should probably work. But his way is so much better. His way brings him so much more glory that we're all bad and we're all of our... Um, our behavior and our holiness really has nothing to do with our initial salvation. God saves the people who don't deserve it so that he would receive all the glory. And that's not a system any of us would have ever come up with, that the people who deserve it the least get the most. But because God doesn't work the way we work, it's so much better. He gets so much more glory. And so the application then is really simple as we read this passage. It's to just, look, be encouraged. Sometimes our lives feel like this guy's 40 years. Sometimes we feel like we're in the middle of year 15 of a 40-year sentence of sitting out in front of the temple, people flicking pennies at us and looking at us with disgust. Just sitting in the crappy part of life. But the encouragement is this. Even when it seems like there's no hope, we read passages like this and we know God always knows what he's up to. And if we can trust him with our salvation, that that's not how we would have drawn it up, I think we can trust him with the rest of our life, with the future of our church, with our relationships, with our jobs, with the city that we live in. I don't know how he's going to be glorified at the end of all of this stuff that is hard, but I know that when we see it finally happen, we're going to be bouncing around and jumping for joy. Now, that might be in this life, we might see something like that, and it might not be. It might be in the next life. We might get into the new heaven and earth and we'll see exactly what God was up to the whole time. We're going to spend eternity bouncing around and singing songs and praising. So the encouragement is just remember, as life gets hard, eventually, because of our salvation, we're being brought into this new life in Christ. We're being brought into the new heaven and earth. And eventually, with this guy, with Peter and with John, we are going to spend eternity bouncing around, singing praises and glorifying God. Amen? All right, let's pray.